0: It's wonderful to see all of you here tonight as we uh, continue our Bible overview. Excuse me while I handle something technical here. Very high-tech switching of a cable. One second. Get us all set up. And um, as I'm doing this... Hey, it works great um, some of you may have been here this morning Know some of you are only able to come in the evenings but I just wanted to make you aware of something that we uh, covered this morning and what we're entering into uh, as a church and that is what we're calling a time to build which is um, a season of giving here at the church and I don't want to go into tremendous detail about it what I'd encourage you to do uh, is you could go to the church's uh, YouTube channel and find this morning's uh, service there, where Mike did about a 10-minute talk on what this uh, season in our church is all about. But um, there are these little packets that we made available this morning that we have this evening. Ben is back there by the EasyJet desk, otherwise known as the FII uh, counter as, as you leave. Um, but in there you can find an explanation of what we're looking that we think God is calling us to do in the next ministry season in 2023. Um, and what that means for uh, us as a church financially, and what God may be challenging each one of us to do uh, in this season in response to that. So encourage you, um, if you were not here this morning, or even if you were and you want to go back and make sure you really understood what it was all about, um, encourage you to go um, to the church's uh, YouTube channel. That um, service this morning is live now, and you can find that all there. Um, but tonight, we are, again, in our series about God's big picture. Uh, this whole idea of taking an overview of the Bible. And um, in that, there are some assumptions that we're operating with. Hold on, let's see if I can find my way here. And that is, what we've been saying all along, is that we're really looking at, even though this is, yikes, I just did something bad. There we go, but now we're off. Help! (laughs) I don't know if one of you guys can come. Yeah, thanks, man. Sorry about that. Um, But what we're looking at with this book is a book that has multiple human authors, Written over many centuries uh, in many different languages, but really having one divine author behind it with one main theme, that is Jesus Christ and God's plan to bless the world through him. we're really looking at one book, which is why we can come, this is great, because you know when you're a speaker up here and something like this is happening, guess what happens? Everybody's vision is going that way, I can see it. Um, But what we're looking at is honestly why we can take a look at this, not as A bit of random pieces put together, but one cohesive story that we can get the big picture of. So if you haven't been with us, that is what we have been pursuing, that it ultimately all points to Jesus. The pattern, just by way of reminder, that we have been using to help us navigate our way through this and kind of get our handles on the big picture is that idea of the kingdom of God, of God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing his blessing, under, under his rule. Last week, we looked at, the last several weeks, we've been looking at um, the, the pattern of the kingdom. We'll review that in just a moment. The parish kingdom, the promised kingdom, and tonight we're going to be looking at this idea of the partial kingdom. If you weren't with us, we talked about how over these last few weeks, when we come to the first few pages of the book of Genesis, we see that there is a pattern We see it all the way in the beginning in creation where God creates uh, the garden and you have Adam and Eve who are God's people in God's place, the garden under his rule and his blessing where his um, commands about uh, how to live in the garden, they experience this perfect relationship with him and with one another. They know no shame and they perfectly know one another. It's the kind of world we all want. But we see in Genesis 3 to 11... Uh, initially an enemy coming in to subvert and to act in an insidious way to uh, be subversive to God's kingdom and we see humanity rebelling against God and his rule and in so doing saying no also to living under his rule and his blessing and so we see them pushed out And we went and we saw this progression as you then go through the first few chapters of Genesis of how things continually digress and get worse and get worse and get worse. But we see hints along the way of God's intention to rescue all this, which is what we looked at last week with the whole idea of God promising to turn things around. We looked at a passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 12, Uh, where God meets, if you want to turn in your Bible there, and we're going to start there kind of tonight, Uh, Genesis chapter 12. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Um, Or if you have an app on your phone, that will work nicely too. But we see in Genesis chapter 12, these verses that God comes and meets this fellow from Ur of the Chaldees, (laughs) His name's Abram, and he meets him, and he says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. If you remember last week, we said it was no exaggeration to say that this passage of scripture is the most unifying text in the whole Bible that brings together what has come in Genesis to this point and now sets the pattern for what will come following after and what is promised through it that namely comes to pass through the offspring of, of Abram, Abraham in this case, Jesus Christ eventually. That everything now points forward to that and will come to completion in and through him. That God makes these promises. We're going to unpack this a little bit tonight to see how these promises correspond to the things we've been talking about with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God namely being God's people and God's place under his rule and his blessing. More about that in just a moment. But if you remember, this is something we called a covenant. A compact or an agreement between two parties binding them together in some kind of undertaking. On each other's behalf, and when we think about it in terms of what we are looking at here in Genesis, we are talking about how God is going to unilaterally be intervening into this man's life to then begin the rescue and the reversal of the curse, namely Abraham here. It says that God, the benefit and blessing of humanity, specifically those who by faith receive the promise and commit themselves to the obligation which this undertaking involved so covenant is essential understanding what's coming forward that God in this giving of a covenant to Abram I'm not going to review it all because we did it last week but I just want to refresh our thinking because things build on one another even as we try to understand each week as we as we go through the idea of a covenant is used like 318 times in the scripture and as we come we looked In the mornings here, we've also been looking in these evenings how God promised to Abram that he would be a nation. He promised that his descendants would be blessed and that the world would be blessed through him. And he repeats these promises. This is actually not Genesis 12, but this is Genesis uh, uh, 15, I believe. He says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. A lot of ites there, right? That is the end of Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 18 to 21. So sorry I have that reference wrong there. So I'm pulling all these pieces together to get us to our starting point tonight namely this, as we've been following this whole idea of the kingdom of God to this point, this is the summary of where we are. We've had the pattern of the kingdom, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, living under God's rule and blessing as, as exercised through his word and this perfect relationship they enjoy with him and one another. We saw how that perished, as we just reviewed, and now we see how that was promised to Abraham and his descendants, that he promised them a land and that they would be a blessing for Israel and also that Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. And so if we go back to our our little drawing kind of representation of this that we have, we now see, as we start to progress our way out of Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, uh, in this covenant with Abraham, we see the categories through which we've been seeking to trace our way through the Bible. In that promise, a people, a place, and under God's rule and blessing start to unfold, but not fully. Which is why we're calling it the partial kingdom. So We've had the pattern of the kingdom. We see that has perished. And then it's promised to Abraham, and then in the events that follow after this promise, you see it start to unfold, but not fully develop. And so as we look at this then, um, we're going to start tracing out over, we're going to take two bites at this apple, I think, okay, because um, we're going to start covering a lot of the Old Testament quickly, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but it was supposed to be a Bible overview, right? And we're now about halfway through. Halfway through what the series is supposed to encompass, and we're still in the first part of Genesis, right? Now, why was so much time invested there? Because you really can't get the flow of the story unless it's been set up properly. The bits and the pieces don't make sense. It's kind of like that first week, if you remember, we did the puzzle. And we had, you set up the frame, you know, and you have the picture. And what we've been trying to do is set that picture up so then as we begin to follow the trajectory of the story through the rest of the Bible, we can do it. It's kind of like setting the foundation for a house. You take a lot of time there (laughs) so the rest of it can go up uh, rather quickly. Um, At the same time, There's a caveat we had at the beginning of all this, and that is essentially that we're not seeking to become detailed experts in everything that the Bible is teaching, but rather being able to have a framework to find our way through it and to figure out how the pieces fit. So my apologies if your expectations were we would dive deep into every section of the Bible. We're not going to do that. We're more going to see how these themes trace their way through the Bible, in the Old Testament. Um, And so from Genesis 12 through to 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36, a huge chunk of the Old Testament, we're going to start seeing how these ideas play out. What ideas are they? Of God's people, God's rule and blessing, God's place. And we're introducing a new element that's going to... Um, we're not going to cover it tonight. I just want to highlight it tonight. And that is the idea of God's king. If we're talking about a kingdom, what do you typically have with a kingdom? A ruler. A king. Um, we won't get to that tonight because we are going to focus primarily tonight on that first line there of God's people. You remember, God promised to Abraham, I will make you into what? A great nation, a great nation. In the partial kingdom, we're going to see that come to pass in the history of how Abraham and Sarah, two elderly, insignificant people in the Middle East, that God's going to intervene in such a way that they will become a great nation through which all nations of the world will be blessed, including us here tonight as followers of Jesus Christ, if that's what we claim to be. Now these categories that we have up here are are rough summaries, all right? This is not like a a really precise way uh, of necessarily categorizing the Old Testament, but it's a helpful way in general, again, of getting your handles on what's the flow of the Bible, And what you see in Genesis 12 through to about Exodus 18 is this storyline of this partial kingdom unfolding to the point of how do two elderly, insignificant, childless people all of a sudden lead to a nation coming into existence. And so let's just track that. And tonight there are kind of three things. And one reason I wanted to slow down on this a little bit. There are three principles or ideas that come out in the unfolding of this story that I think are valuable for us to just clock and absorb. Not only are they helpful for seeing how God works and operates through scripture because remember this book is not primarily a book about you and me which is often how we come to reading it. We want to read it and say how does this speak to me? And the Bible does speak to us, but it speaks to us about him. And it's an understanding him that we can sort out, if we can find where we're at in God's story, in God's agenda, we can figure out how our lives intersect with that and how we should be operating. And so let's just go ahead then and we'll crack on forward. So here we have Abraham and Sarah. If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis uh, Chapter 16. And where we're going to pick this up and start tracing this thought through is if you remember, God in Genesis 15 had promised that Abram would have an heir that would be born to him from himself and Sarah, his, his wife. Now they're elderly, and when it comes to Genesis chapter 16, it says in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, so things aren't working. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named uh, Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And so the situation that we have is then that Abram has a child, but not through Sarah. His name is Ishmael. And God says... No, this this isn't the way it's supposed <laughs> it's supposed to work. So we then look, as we go forward, that God comes back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, if you will. And it says, Abram said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Meaning, I have a son already. I had him with, with Hagar here. Um, his name is Ishmael. And then God said, no, I, I will bless him, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant is I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. The reason I'm highlighting this is because what we are doing is seeing how God is bringing his promise to Abraham in chapter 12 to pass. How he's bringing it to pass. And in this situation you have, by the time, uh, if you look, it says that at this point, Abraham in 17, verse 17 of this chapter is, is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old, Um, and so what comes clear in this fulfillment of God's promises is this principle, that if if the promised kingdom is going to come to pass in its fullness, it is going to require supernatural intervention into what has happened. It's not something that's going to be able to be explained or worked out simply by human effort. We look at Abraham and Sarah, and you have a couple who by all natural means should not be able to conceive and have a child. A hundred. Ninety. Don't see many hospitals going off to Kingston Hospital with, with that couple in the back, Right? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> saying take us in we're ready it's time it doesn't happen and if we think of this through this lens if you will remember we've been looking at Old Testament New Testament there has been this paradigm I'll bring this slide up if I still have it no. oh yes I do <clears throat> this paradigm of promise and fulfillment and you can already think if you're thinking with your your biblical thinking cap on if you want to call it that of what will be coming even further into the New Testament when God again intervenes in an insignificant person's life this time young and a female who's never known a man sexually who shouldn't be pregnant but is And again, throughout all the Bible, there's this model, if you will, this paradigm that's introduced here. That if this kingdom is going to come to pass, it will come through supernatural intervention. And so, again, throughout all of this, just for us to be reminded, there was nothing wonderful about Abraham that God came along and said, I pick you. He wasn't a success. He wasn't faithful. Um, As we follow through um, the story, we look at Isaac, who is the son that is born to them. Uh, As Genesis continues, a year later, the promise comes to pass. And this line of how God is going to bring a great people about, it goes through Isaac. We see God working through that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Isaac and Rebekah also have two sons. Esau is one of them. I think of Esau with my American hat on as a bit of a cowboy with a shotgun hanging in the back of his pickup truck, who goes regularly to the bar and likes to hunt, and he's a man's man, and he's rough, and all these other things. And Jacob, his brother, who was born after him, it says, had soft skin, right? Bit of a mama's boy, liked to hang around home, liked to cook. That kind of stuff. Not, you know, I like to cook too. But you know what I'm saying. He, he was a, they were polar opposite type of people. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 25, as again, we're doing this at a very high altitude here. I'm sorry. But in Genesis chapter 20, um, 25 verse 21. <clears throat> and I'm sorry, before we continue there. No, this is fine. Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. So he ends up going through this whole um, journey, finding a wife, marrying her. uh, Back He goes back to where Abraham is from, uh, goes and finds close relatives. Um, But this family is a bit dysfunctional, and um, it, it doesn't work out. They deceive one another. They trick one another all these other things. He ends up marrying two, two women because he was tricked. I'm sorry, I'm getting into Jacob there, sorry. Um, But Isaac does find, um, does find a wife, Rebekah, and it says his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant in verse 22. The babies jostled with each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. I was getting ahead of myself here, I apologize. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be the stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. And so they have these two boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is the one who ends up uh, being the one through whom God says his promises will come. And again, he is a deceiver. He's a supplanter. He is not someone who you would say um, is a good guy. What is God doing through this? Again, his supernatural intervention demonstrating that it is only through his grace and through his mercy that he is going to bring this about. Jacob ends up deceiving Isaac to get his blessing. And so, if I could draw this out here, maybe I can do this, we see the line going this way, whoops, sorry, meant to get my pen out. The line comes this way when everyone in that world would have thought it was this way, and then it goes this way when again he was the oldest, everyone would have thought it went that way. So this story is unfolding in an unusual way for that part of the world. We come to Genesis 27, which is where you see that Jacob deceives his own father for this blessing to come to him. I'm going to skip over quite a few chapters here um, because I want to get to, for the sake of time, Jacob ends up Marrying this woman Rachel, but also, this is what I was getting at earlier, her sister Leah. And between those two women and two other women, he has these 12 sons Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah were born to Leah. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher were actually offspring of two of their maidservants, so the apple didn't far, fall too far from the tree. In terms of, remember, Abraham had Ishmael through Hagar, so there's a pattern developing here. And then we have Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, I've highlighted Joseph because as we see God supernaturally intervening, God is going to work through this man right here. Joseph and Benjamin... See, Jacob really loved Rachel more than he really loved. He kind of got tricked into marrying Leah. And he really wanted Rachel. He worked for seven years thinking he was going to get Rachel. Married a woman, lifted her veil, realized this is the wrong sister. Whoops, it's the way we do it here. Can you work another seven years? And so he works another seven years and gets to marry Rachel. Joseph... And Benjamin are the only two sons born to him from her, and he loves Joseph. when we get to Genesis chapter 37, which is where I'd like you to go now, we meet Joseph as um, a bit of a spoiled kid <laughs> who has dreams and his dreams Point to something God is going to be doing in bringing about this people coming into being. Genesis chapter 37, verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Verse 9, Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. If you were to follow the story where it goes from here, Joseph's brothers find opportunity to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Now, if you were to go back to this diagram, tracing the story, it really doesn't seem like things are going that well, does it? You have a family that's pretty dysfunctional. They don't operate very well. (laughs) The story started out with, Needing supernatural intervention just for it to get going. What we're going to see now is God, I'll use the word, sovereignly intervening. This idea of sovereign providence I'm going to talk about in just a moment. Which is an important concept to see how this story moves forward. In Genesis, where we were at here just a moment ago. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, and it doesn't go well for him there. He is bought by a man named Potiphar, who Joseph works for and does very well. He's elevated in the household, and then Potiphar's wife wants to seduce him, and he resists it. She frames him. He goes to prison. In prison, uh, he, he goes through all these difficulties, but eventually, God reveals a dream That will lead to the deliverance of Egypt from famine. And Joseph is elevated out of prison to eventually rule over Egypt. Why, Why does this matter? Do you remember the promise to Abraham? All nations will be blessed through you. We see this supernatural intervention. Circumstances that seem like this isn't going to work. How is this going to sort? And then God in his sovereignty is... Sovereignty, just... I'll just stop there. Kind of a big Bible theological word. All it means is God is the supreme king, lawgiver, ruler, rule, rule giver over all the universe. And his providence means that he is ruling, overruling, intervening throughout the course of history to accomplish his purpose ends, ultimately leading to blessing the world through Jesus Christ. How do you think it looked for Joseph at this point? Perhaps some of you can identify with him, because Joseph, in going through all he went through, could very much have felt like, God just doesn't really seem to be working out. But as we look at the story, as he is sold into slavery, God has a purpose that he is working out. Look at verse, Genesis chapter 15. We looked at some of these verses earlier. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, knew that the descendants of Abraham would be going to Egypt. He would be working it out that way. Joseph ends up there because his brothers are jealous of him, hate him, want to kill him. But God had a plan not only to bless Abram's descendants and multiply them and make them into a nation, but also to bless Egypt. So remember this dream that Joseph was able to interpret for Pharaoh leads to them being prepared for this famine that comes on Egypt. And so all the people are saved because they're ready for it now in this story joseph's brothers go down to egypt joseph has been elevated to second only to pharaoh in egypt and they finally realize as the story unfolds that this is joseph right and they're worried that he is going to take vengeance upon them but joseph says this joseph said to them don't be afraid Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This idea not only of supernatural intervention, but God's sovereign providence. Now just to stop, why does that matter for you And for me, why does it matter when we think about God works out his plan in the scriptures with this idea of sovereign providence? Again, knowing that this is not necessarily a book primarily about you and me, but primarily about him. There are many seasons of life that we can walk through that seem very dark, that we don't know how things are going to sort. That we look at them and say, God, I don't see you working out your kingdom purposes in my life. If we had met Joseph in the prison and spoke to him there, you wonder how he would have felt. But part of being able, this is why it's so important to have an overall view of how God is working through Scripture is that God was ruling and overruling in Joseph's life, not just for his own good, but to accomplish his bigger purposes of blessing the nations through the descendants of Abraham. So, what does that mean for you? It doesn't mean, or, and for me, it doesn't mean that all the circumstances that we go through are going to be easy or make sense. But what can we have the confidence in from Scripture knowing that God is doing? That he is sovereignly ruling and overruling in all the instances of our lives to bring his purposes to pass. I had a colleague, friend, pastor in Wisconsin where we came from who when we spoke about the sovereignty of God, he say, yeah, the sovereignty of God is great until it happens to you. With the idea of, you know, you go through difficulties. Oh, God is sovereign and all these other things. But, you know, then it happens to you. It's the diagnosis you don't want to receive. Or the notification from your employer that things aren't going, you know, the way you thought they would financially. Things we were talking about even this morning in all of this. But what can we see through this? Is God is ruling and overruling. Is God is working out his plan to bless the nations through this Obscure man in the Middle East, he supernaturally intervenes and he sovereignly and providentially moves things to pass. And if you argue from the greater to the lesser, if you argue that God can do that to bless the nations, can he do that for you? Can he do that for me? And so, what is the end result? of all of this as we continue our trajectory remember we started with Abraham and Sarah an elderly couple 100 years old and 90 years old with no children by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1 we see the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all So you have the beginnings now of what's going to pass. As we keep reading, it says, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So much so that the Pharaoh, the ruler who uh, came, who who rose up, was fearful of them and enslaved them. It says that during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help uh, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his what? His covenant with Abraham. Now remember, we're tracing this said through of how God is going to make Abraham into a great what? Nation. One couple to a great nation. We're getting there. But they're now enslaved. And if you know the story, either from reading the Bible or from watching a movie or, or something, um, you know that God calls to Moses in a burning bush and he calls to him saying, go back to Egypt, I'm going to use you to set my people free. You even see God's supernatural providence in this, in that Moses is plucked out of the River Nile because his parents are trying to... Uh, trying to save him from Pharaoh, wanting to destroy all the male children in in Egypt, all the, the, um, the Israelite children. And so he is providentially preserved as well. So Moses is sent back to Egypt to be God's messenger to Pharaoh to set his people free. And there is a principle in God setting his people free that I'm just going to go through quickly here. We've looked at God's supernatural intervention. We've looked at God's uh, sovereign providence. There's another principle in, in at work here, and that is God saving by substitute. God saving by substitute. In Exodus 12, verses 12 through 13. So God sends. Moses back to deliver a message to Pharaoh to set his people free. Pharaoh resists it, and you know how the story goes, that these ten plagues that are targeted at the religious, spiritual power structure, if you will, of Egypt. And so these plagues come, Pharaoh is resistant, the last plague is that there would be the firstborn male of every household would, would die. But God gave a way for that to be for a rescue, for a way for that to pass over the Israelites. God says on that same night in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The plan God had given was for a, a perfect, unblemished lamb to be sacrificed, and its blood applied to the doorposts so that this angel of death would, would pass over that home. And so God in creating and delivering a people for himself, because this is what leads them to be able to leave Egypt and become a nation, how does he save them? This is God's great act of deliverance in the Old Testament. He saves them by means of a substitute. Now again, to put all of this together as we think about this picture, and I'll try to go back to it here it's not letting me. There we go. God supernaturally intervening, providentially arranging all things and providing a substitute should make us start thinking of this. Sorry. Right here. God supernaturally intervened, providentially orchestrated all events of history to lead to a particular point, to provide a substitute to save and to rescue. That is why understanding the trajectory of the whole story of the Old Testament into the new is so important. And so what did God do as we come from Genesis 12 to Genesis 18? God, through this plague where the firstborn die, brings the nation as he intended out of Egypt, and they they escape, this is the exodus, and they come out as a great nation. And you see this partial fulfillment, this is the first one we are focusing on tonight, of this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So what had God brought to pass at this point? His promise to an obscure elderly couple that their descendants would become a great nation has come to pass. God is working it out. It's partial. We're going to see how that idea of it being partial plays out in the future. But this is a story about what God is doing in the world. And what I want you to, to think about in terms of promise and fulfillment, there is uh, an American writer who says this about the Bible. His name is, is Henry Blackaby. He wrote a book called Experiencing God. And in that book, he talks about the Bible. And he says of the Word of God that he says, in it, again, this isn't a book about us, this is a book about him. He's the hero. Not you and me. And as we read it, he says that in it we find that God reveals himself. He reveals his purposes. And he reveals his ways. God brought his plan to pass to make them into a great nation. He reveals himself, his purposes, and his ways. And as we get that big sense of how the story is going... I think how I want to encourage you to start reading the Bible is not what does it say to me, but what does it say about God? What does it say He's doing in the world? And then where does my life fit into that? Because contrary to what we want to think, life is not about us and our happiness. It's about what God is doing to bring about His kingdom purposes, in the world. So, that as we continue to trace this through, and we see that next time we're going to see what it looks like for God's rule and His blessing, and we'll go through to also God's place. We'll kind of try to move through this quickly. That all of this is moving, sorry, towards an end. The cross and all things ultimately coming under the rule and reign of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that is where we'll be progressing as we go to our next time. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that um, there is a thread and a theme to the Bible. And when we try to do it in this big overview kind of way, um, we have to cover a lot of ground quickly. But I pray as we do that, Lord, that even though we went over a lot of details and skimmed over a lot of details to try to get that big picture, that you would encourage us in seeing that you have worked on a grand level through the events of history to bring about your plans and purposes in this world. And as we grasp that and come to know you as the God who is over all of history, who rules and overrules and whose purposes and plans cannot be thwarted, that we would have great faith and that we would learn to bow at your feet in worship and trust you even when life doesn't make sense and be encouraged that the people you chose to work through in scripture were misfits and failures and insignificant yet through them you accomplished your grand and glorious plans, ultimately leading to the coming of your Son, the great King that you promised to rule and to reign and to restore all things and to rescue us from what we lost and to restore us to yourself, to be your people under your rule, experiencing your blessing. So Father, please take whatever was helpful tonight. And may it be sown deep in our hearts, whatever was confusing or difficult, would you just help that, Lord, to uh, not be what we're left with. And may we leave this place, Lord, um, longing to know more of you and longing to know more of your word and how you are working in this world to live under your rule, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.